Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. You can follow me on Twitter at FTCN Host. Thanks for listening. In this episode of From the Crow's Nest, I am joined by Dana Goward. He is president of the Resilient Navigation and Timing Foundation. Uh, we sit down and discuss GPS spoofing, where it's been, where it's going, and what it means in the context of current events, especially over in Ukraine. Before I get to him, I have a couple of things I just want to get to first. First off, I want to thank my listeners. Last week, I mentioned a new podcast by Dr. Alex Valenti called Defense. And after my call to check it out, she saw a spike in U.S. listenership. So for those of you who did this, thank you very much. Uh, we'll hopefully find an opportunity to join forces here in the near future or to collaborate in some way uh, through this podcast and other initiatives. I'm always looking for new ways to kind of push the resources envelope for our community. So this is all good and fun, and I greatly appreciate everyone who tuned into her podcast. The next thing I want to briefly mention is that uh, during the intro, I mentioned you can follow me on Twitter at FTCN Host. Now, admittedly, I am terrible at social media. So trying to maintain a Twitter account and use it to keep in touch with my listeners has been a challenge. Haven't figured out all the secrets yet. And so it's not a natural platform for me to use. However, I'm going to conquer this. And so here's what I'm hoping that my listeners here will do. Please go to Twitter, follow me, share your thoughts, topics, what you want me to cover on the show, ask questions. You can post your message on Twitter. You can direct message me. And starting this week, I'm going to try to spend more time on that platform to try to engage the listeners one-on-one by, again, messaging, tweeting, uh, you know, forwarding tweets and so forth. But, you know, apologies for the rather spotty Twitter engagement up until this time. But I do want to kind of put out that charge to the listeners to figure out how to use this platform. One of the things that we're going to do in the near future here, hopefully by AOC Europe, which I'll be in attendance for in a couple months, is to use Twitter spaces to have live streaming audio conversations as well. So there's a lot going on on the Twitter platform right now, and I uh, really hope that you can uh, join me on that and help get that uh, squared away. And finally, the big news of the past couple weeks, uh, the president's budget was finally sent to Capitol Hill last week. We now get to sit back and watch the scintillating defense budget process unfold in Congress. And in all seriousness, though, it is an important milestone and it is for, for Congress and our community as a lot of our programs and priorities will get funding attached and discussed throughout in hearings within Congress. There's too much to go into here on the podcast at this time. You know, we will be covering pieces of this throughout future episodes. But, you know, overall, the president's budget includes $1.7 trillion. It represents a 4.8% increase over what was appropriated in FY 2023. For defense spending, the president's budget request comes in at $886.3 billion. $842 billion of that is dedicated directly to the Department of Defense. The rest goes to other federal agencies that have defense-related missions. 
it's important to note that when you know, you're looking at what is in the defense budget, the, the two critical priorities of DOD is it recognizes China as a key strategic competitor and it labels Russia as an acute threat to U.S. and its allies. And so you can kind of see how those two designations affect overall funding for DOD. Interestingly enough, it also contains the largest procurement and research and development budget ever at a combined $315 billion. And uh, for space and space-based systems, it's also the largest ever at uh, $33.3 billion. So there's a lot of interesting stuff in the budget that we're currently going over on critical technologies, 5G, microelectronics, you know, traditional EW programs of record. Again, instead of covering it all here in the podcast, after I'm done recording, I'm going to sit down and write an article on this. And we'll put that out on AOC website, crows.org. We'll also put it in our weekly eCrow newsletter and uh, post it on Jet Online so you can take a look at that. And, and we'll go into more detail and a little bit easier to convey all the, all the pieces that way. So with that, I'd like to get to my interview with Dana Goward. Dana, it's great to have you here on From the Crow's Nest. Thanks for joining me. It's a real pleasure. So we, uh, we first met, I guess, a, a few weeks ago. I had the honor of uh, moderating one of AOC's webinars that we do regularly on, on a regular basis. And, and this was the topic of the talk. And you were, you were the gracious uh, presenter. I really enjoyed being able to engage you on that platform. Um, and if you're an AOC member listening to this, you can always go to those archives and download that presentation as well. But for many of our listeners, you know, we have a different audience. So I wanted to have you on from the crow's nest here to talk about the same issue because I felt it was particularly relevant for today's uh, conversations about national security. Thanks for uh, taking some extra time to join us here on this and uh, looking forward to uh, talking with you. It's one of my favorite topics. So glad to be here. Just to get started, to get, help our listeners get a little bit more familiar with who you are and, and the foundation that you run, could you tell us a little bit about that and what space do you occupy in kind of the national conversation when we talk about the you know GPS uh, issues and navigation? Well, so Ken, the Resilient Navigation Timing Foundation is actually a 501c3 public benefit uh, scientific and educational charity. So... What that means is that we're not an industry association. We've specifically chose a charity status so we could provide as much unbiased information about uh, what needs to be done to protect GPS satellite signals and users as, uh, as possible. In addition to being the president of the foundation, I am also a member of the president's national space-based uh, position navigation and timing advisory board. And I've been a senior advisor to Space Command on their purposeful interference response team. So... Uh, we occupy a relatively unique niche in the national conversation, as you say, because uh, we blog about this. We talk to folks like the Association of Old Crows about the challenges and the, uh, the solutions that are reasonably well acknowledged but have yet to be put in place. One of the things we talk about all the time here is just how ubiquitous satellite communications networks um, and timing our capabilities are across every aspect of our life. It touches national security, it touches commerce, trans-Pacific, transatlantic, transportation, you name it. And we rely on the capabilities of satellite communications, GPS, navigation, timing, all those. And they all have to work properly. Could you talk a little bit about how we got to this point in terms of just thinking about these, this almost over-reliance not in a negative way, but this extreme reliance on GPS and navigation timing systems and satellites. 
Sure. And I would say that over-reliance on anything is, is a little bit of a negative. So and it is something we have to guard against. So GPS started out in the words of its chief architect, Brad Parkinson, as an effort to put five bombs in the same hole. It definitely a military capability, but very quickly uh, it became a civilian utility as well. And one could argue it's probably the largest, uh, most silent and widely adopted uh, utility around the planet. People who don't even have electrical power uh, will use GPS to synchronize their cell phones and to find their way uh, on their mobile devices and, and that sort of thing. So most folks think of it as a navigation capability. You think about your cell phone, you think about Waze or Google Maps. And yes, absolutely, it's uh, essential to every method and mode of transportation. We have built our society, transportation-wise, around freely available GPS signals that are highly accurate. Uh, we've also built our society much less visibly around the highly precise free timing signals that GPS offers. They uh, uh, allow us to synchronize cell phone networks. They allow us to uh, synchronize um, all kinds of uh, networks, actually, machine systems, timestamp financial systems. The list just goes on and on. And if GPS signals were not available, it's not just transportation that would suffer, but uh, things like the electrical grid, which uses GPS signals in order to synchronize the transmissions and uh, different power grids where they meet, uses it for forensics and to determine different load bearings and, and, and practical things like billing, as do most industries. So it's the kind of thing that uh, is the kind of dependency that has caused the director of um, resiliency on the National Security Council to call GPS a single point of failure for America. And it really is because unlike other countries, we do not have a widely available and adoptable alternative to GPS. We, uh, there are alternatives. There are some systems that are being used, but they're not widely adopted. And uh, you know, the threat of a, uh, of a GPS outage is an existential, a near existential uh, threat anyway, uh, for the United States. But would you say that the our, our dependency on GPS timing, so those capabilities outpaced kind of our willingness to recognize the vulnerabilities of those systems? You know, it was, it, there's so much opportunity that we can do X, Y, and Z with this that we just assumed that it would be secure. Well, I, I don't know if people assumed it would be secure, but they certainly have assumed that, uh, well, I, I suppose... Unconsciously, they've assumed that, right? Because uh, there are so many systems where engineers and technologists said, ah, here's GPS, it's free, it's highly precise, nothing really bad has happened yet, we'll use it. And they probably in the back of their mind have thought, well, if something goes wrong, it's not my fault. This is a government system, so I'll use it and I don't really have any responsibility uh, if things go south. Not everyone's done that, of course, but uh, it's been so widely adopted in tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of of uh, applications, sometimes when it's not needed, uh, where there are better alternatives available, but you know, it's highly precise, it's free, it's very, very inexpensive to, uh, to buy a chip to receive GPS signals. So folks uh, have, have used it. And uh, the, the challenge is, of course, as you say, is it's not, uh, it's not secure, it's not authenticated, it's very easy to disrupt or, or to imitate, and it, it often is. 90% of those disruptions are unintentional, just to stray uh, radio frequency leakage from one thing or another. But the, the GPS signal is so, so very faint that it's very easy for to be interfered with, either in terms of uh, being denied or uh, more insidiously, just wandering off someplace where it has no reason to be. That often happens with random interference. Uh, 
especially if you're on the fringes of the interference area, the rather than the receiver just stopping working, it will it'll wander off and give you hazardously misleading information. That's one of the things that's really interesting. When you were giving your, your webinar presentation you, and you were talking about this very topic of all the different ways that GPS could be interfered with and so forth, it's definitely increased as a target for nefarious purposes over the recent years. And when we talk about targets and we talk about vulnerabilities and intentions of adversaries, it's always a matter of what is the cost to execute a plan? How can it be traced back to an adversary? Obviously, people want to do things in the shadows. Can you recognize an effect that it has? And that's always something that we talk about with electronic warfare, you know, this measurable effect and the repetition. How can you do it over and over again? And it feels like attacks on GPS and timing navigation systems kind of check all those boxes. It can be low cost. It can be, it, it, it can be go untraceable. You can recognize an effect, even if it's mild or very minimal, and you can re- repeat it over and over again because you don't actually, you can't actually figure out what's going on because it's so subtle. So like, talk about like that idea of like, it's become a target because it checks all those boxes. Is that an accurate way of looking at it? Oh, absolutely. So uh, just talking about hostile attacks rather uh, as opposed to natural or accidental, somebody can buy something off the internet uh, for you know, 20 bucks or so that will defeat GPS reception within 100 meters of themselves. And uh, there's really no way that uh, authorities have to, uh, to counter that sort of thing other than, you know, trying to police uh, imports and, and that sort of thing. There, there's no monitoring system that would uh, detect somebody buying and or using uh, that sort of thing. And of course, if you want to go more than 20 bucks, you get more sophisticated. You can get into the impersonation and uh, and spoofing and, and deliberately giving people hazardously misleading information. In fact, the government of Mexico says that uh, GPS disruption devices are a part of uh, 80% of the cargo thefts in Mexico. So they have very stringent laws against purchasing and using these uh, devices. As an example of how difficult this kind of thing is to detect, uh, in October of last year, the Dallas-Fort Worth airport and the about 40 miles around it uh, had a GPS disruption event that lasted for 24 hours, 24 hours. Uh, air traffic was impacted. They had to use different procedures, land on different runways, that sort of thing. The impact on, of, uh, on air traffic lasted for another 20 hours, so 44 hours total which is bad enough in and of itself. But to me, the worst thing is that the government never found out where it was coming from. It just turned itself off. And uh, even despite all of the forensics and the abilities and, and capabilities the government has, they, they still don't know where it came from. And that was a powerful signal, right? I had a similar incident in January of, uh, of last year at uh, Denver. And it took the government uh, 33 hours to identify the uh, signal and, uh, and get it shut down. It impacted a lot more than just aviation in that particular instance as well. And it seems like it also has an, potentially an extreme psychological impact too. I mean, if just a consumer or an average person starts to question or have doubt, you don't have trust of that capability, that can spread quickly into a lot of different areas of life. So how do you handle the psychological impact of the lack of trust in the in these systems, whether it's real or perceived based on the increase in incidents. Right. Well, so we haven't seen a whole lot of lack of trust 
Yeah, I mean, uh, we, we'd like to say the challenge with this issue is that little Susie hasn't died yet. I mean, nobody crashed at uh, Denver or in Dallas. We had a near loss of a passenger aircraft in Sun Valley in 2019, but they didn't crash. So it was a scare, but it wasn't a big enough scare for the federal authorities to be more proactive in this kind of thing. So we don't have a lack of trust, which is unfortunate because, as you say, it, it lulls folks into that sense of confidence and they don't take the precautions. And if they see something that's wrong with their device, they say, well, well, what did I do wrong in terms of user error, right? They don't tend to think, well, somebody is messing with, with the signal or there's something wrong with the satellite or there's something wrong with my device. They say, oh, I must have, because it, it works a lot, which provides uh, a fertile ground for uh, malicious folks, allows them to use it to aid in cargo thefts, for, for example, and all kinds of things that we don't know about. I have seen reports from the United States about the, the theft of cargo. FBI advisory uh, was made public several years back, but there's not a lot of that uh, open conversation in our country. So yeah, it's a, it, it's, it's a real challenge to get folks to recognize it on an individual basis and to, to be skeptical themselves. And it's a, it's a real challenge with policymakers to get them to realize that we have this single point of failure and it's not one that's shared by, by other countries. So I want to kind of step back a little bit now and kind of talk about how things work. And as it's going to be hard to maybe do over a podcast where it's only audio, could you talk about how things work? You know, we, you mentioned earlier, you know, GPS signal is very weak. Like what is going on? And from a technical perspective, on both sides of the equation um, and help the listeners kind of understand when we hear, when we talk about GPS, I mean, what does that mean? GPS satellites are over the earth about 12,500 miles. Uh, they're powered by solar panels and they transmit very, very faint signals to a certain, that, that sets intentional so they don't interfere with each other. And the signals that they transmit are essentially time signals because the, the satellites are a suite of uh, atomic clocks connected to a radio. So those satellites send a time signal and your receiver receives the signal from four or more satellites. And because all of the time signals are sent at the exact same moment, they will arrive because they're different distances from your receiver. They will arrive at your receiver at slightly different times. Okay. And so your receiver measures those differences in times and says, oh, I know these were all sent at the same time. I know where the satellites were. So I must be here in three dimensions. Because it's based all on a time signal, that is why it's a really, really good source for timing and synchronization across all these other industries. Now, the signal, the GPS satellites make less noise in the radio frequency spectrum than the sun and the stars uh, do when they, they burn and twinkle, right? So your receiver has to look down in the noise floor to winkle out the coded signals and figure out the different different is between them and, and do all the complicated math. But it does that most of the time. But because it's such a, a weak signal, it's way down the noise floor. That's why it's really easy to disrupt accidentally or on purpose. Now, we have wanted from the beginning to have GPS adopted by as many people as possible for as many reasons as possible, many applications, right? And it's been a huge success. It has spawned so many new applications. It's spawned entire new industries, right? Think about ways and, and think about Uber and Lyft and delivery companies that no longer need half the number of trucks and drivers, right? Because it can do things more efficiently. So we've wanted it to be adopted 
for so many new applications, and we've wanted to make it uh, America's gift to the world, which we did. And we did that by making the signal specification available to everybody so that all the engineers could incorporate all that information into their receivers and applications. And as a result, all of these new industries like Uber and Lyft and hyper-efficient uh, delivery services and such came into being. It has generated so much efficiency and so much increase in productivity, it's hard to imagine. It's in the trillions of dollars a year, undoubtedly. But because we made the signal specification public knowledge so everybody could use it and incorporate it, that also means that the bad guys know exactly what it looks like. And so it's very easy for them, especially now in the world of software-defined radios, to purchase a device off the internet specifically designed to imitate uh, GPS signals and to transmit false GPS signals that will lure an unwary and unsophisticated receiver, especially off of where it should be and down the road that they they want. It used to be back in the mid-20-teens that this was something that you would have to do as a reasonably sophisticated hacker, uh, but now uh, now you can pretty much buy them ready-made and the, the level of sophistication and uh, the expense has, has gone down dramatically. I've also seen uh, papers where folks have shown how in addition to sending the false GPS signals, you can also send a false map so that the, the map that the individual is looking with kind of looks like what they're seeing outside. And so as they follow the false GPS signal, they're not alerted by the fact that what they're seeing outside their windscreen is different from what, that much different from what they see in the map. So to a certain degree, it's, it's a bit like, you know, the internet. We thought it would be wonderful, made it available to everybody. But of course, whenever there's something nice, there's gonna be so, those folks in the world that are gonna put it to bad use. And, and, and we certainly have seen that with, with GPS. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. A BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing to high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology and for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. 
We then transition our technology to feelable products that benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems, Electronic Systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. Now, with targeting, you know, when we talk about, you know, conflicts around the world and, and targeting, particularly with lethal weapons, there's a lot of efforts to use shields that for those weapon systems to make it difficult to target them. We've seen where you know, maybe it's you know next to a hospital or something, and we have to make sure that the targeting is precise because 30 feet off, 100 feet off could be devastating. How does a system kind of affect the precise targeting of a missile system in terms of to protect itself? So that's a, that's a really good question. There are a number of layers to that. So First of all, we're going to assume that these are American weapons and we're not intending to attack right. uh, <laughs> civil yes. infrastructure in hospitals as opposed to some other folks who really don't care or maybe would want to target them. So if you have a guided ammunition or drone or something like that, there are things you can do to increase the uh, resilience to jamming or interference, right? There's uh, uh, software and hardware uh, just uh, to give a really quick open example, most jamming comes from the ground. So if you ensure your antenna is only looking at the sky, then that's a pretty good first step, right? So, and there, and there are other things you, you can do. It's a whole another uh, podcast or two to talk about those kinds of things. But so there are things you can do for your devices. Now, if the adversary is intent on denying signals and they have uh, uh, enough power and as we discussed, it doesn't really take enough power, uh, much power. You can just deny the signals rather than worrying about where your signal is coming from or whether or not you're going to be able to spoof them or, or, or something. And then if you're the system that's, that's being denied, there are other things you can do in order to continue the, uh, the package on its way. They will be much less precise. So if you have a, an inertial system on board, you know, the inertial system is going to be good for probably 45 seconds or so, and then the device will either follow the inertial system or it'll just continue on in whatever trajectory it was on. And depends depends on the, uh, on the system. So there are things that you can do in that vein. Now, if you are being targeted by GPS or satellite navigation uh, guided weapons, there are things you can do to protect yourself. For example, uh, in uh, the Ukrainian conflict, there is a uh, website called gpsgem.org 
that shows indications of GPS interference around the globe. And uh, it does that by uh, interpreting reports from airplanes that are going by. So we don't see a lot over the Ukraine because not a lot of commercial airplanes are going over the Ukraine these days. However, uh, it's really interesting that when Ukraine started to attack Russian airfields hundreds of miles inside of Russia with drones, we saw the, the pattern of GPS jamming and spoofing inside of Russia uh, shift dramatically. We've always seen a lot of jamming and spoofing in, in Moscow and, and other areas and around some uh, air bases because they, uh, they don't want drones attacking their senior leaders and other, other infrastructure. But after the Ukrainian drone attacks on the air bases where presumably they were being hit from by uh, Russian aircraft, Several days afterwards, we saw that there was much more spoofing over around the air bases that had been attacked than there had been uh, been previously. So it, it, it can be used uh, as a defensive measure as well as, uh, as an offensive measure. Now, when you gave your presentation to the AOC webinar series, you know, kind of the topic was uh, uh, you do this on a yearly basis, kind of give a yearly report of what's going on. Can you give us a report? A little bit about like what what has the past year looked like? What are some of the things that really caught your attention over the past year or so on this topic? And then I you know I want I do want to talk a little bit about kind of what we're seeing today in Ukraine and other hot spots around the world. Sure. Well, over the last twelve months, we've seen a lot more reporting of interference with uh, with GPS. A lot of it's associated with the. Uh, the conflict in Ukraine, but uh, a lot's not. We just posted something the other day about how uh, interference with GPS in northern Norway is much worse than it has been in a long time. We first started seeing it in 2017, but it's been somewhat of a steady increase. It's coming from Russia, by the way, uh, probably no surprise there, but they're having a real problem with aviation and uh, first responder systems in northern Norway because hardly a day goes by where they don't have uh, some part of the day with uh, where GPS is, is denied or, or interfered with. Is there any reason why Northern Norway is experiencing this versus other places? I mean, I know that there's a major strategic importance to some of the, the, the passageways. Is that why? Yeah, it, it, it's hard to say for sure. Certainly based on open source reports, there is a sense we have seen the uh, Russians say that they routinely interfere with GPS to defeat U.S. cruise missiles. Not sure that they really have a reason to be concerned about U.S. cruise missiles coming through that particular area at the time. It may well be that they're uh, just concerned about asserting their dominance in Scandinavia, uh, or they're increasing their military exercises because they're forward deployed in the Ukraine war. It's, it's, it's hard to say. I like to say I I shouldn't speculate, and but I do. Uh, but everybody wonders, right? What, what the heck is going on? Why, why would you go through this, this effort? What, one interesting thing about that effort is that most GPS interference also gets the other global navigation satellite systems, right? So Russia's GLONASS, uh, Europe's Galileo, and China's Beidou, right? All of those are GPS-like systems we call GNSS or global navigation satellite systems. They all operate in pretty much the same frequency band. Uh, so it's less expensive and it's easier uh, to get a jammer that just gets all of them, right? Because you don't have to be really as precise. But we have uh, seen in uh, Northern Norway upon occasion that the jamming just targets uh, GPS and leaves the Russians' GLONASS system alone. 
which is something that requires a reasonable degree of sophistication. Again, that's a, an interesting bit, and it certainly confirms that it's a military type, uh, type thing and not something accidental. Now, you, you said that, you know, you've seen, you've seen an increase, not just this past year, but in recent years, obviously across the board. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, a lot of these are unintentional. Does that make it hard? And then obviously some are intentional, but not necessarily nefarious or anything that's meant to bring down a grid or anything. Does the quantity of the unintentional make it difficult to figure out what is intentional and then what is nefarious? I mean, is, is it just such a problem that you are kind of guessing a lot as you start to gather this data? That's a really good question. The uh, European Union did a uh, study called Strike 3 several years ago, and they went out and sampled for about a year and a half uh, signals in that frequency band that could possibly interfere with GPS and Galileo and other systems. And they found that 90% of the signals were unintentional. And they did that by an analyzing the, the signal structure and quality. They also uh, interestingly found that there were about 300 families of jammers that were out there in use uh, on the continent at the time, which is, uh, which is really interesting. So all of that to say, it is possible to look at the signals and be able to differentiate from probably accidental to definitely malicious and that sort of thing. The challenge we have, especially uh, here in the United States and probably now in Europe, uh, is that nobody seems to be paying attention. Nobody's interested in the issue. We haven't had a strike three like project in the United States to assess the level of, uh, of the, the challenge. So until we do, it's hard to say how hard it will be to, uh, on a regular basis to figure out which is which. And to a certain degree, you know, as far as effects, it, it might be interesting information, but if somebody's disrupted, it doesn't really matter whether it's accidental or malicious. Uh, I mean, for them at the moment, right, they're just, they're just disrupted. Whatever they want to do isn't working. It's important in the long term, I'm sure, to get the bad guys under control, but uh, we're, we're well a long way from that. So in, in terms of Ukraine, you, know, you mentioned obviously a lot of the uh, data that you've collected has some degree of relevance or to, to, to what's going on in Ukraine. It's about, it's been, the conflict's been going on a little bit over a year now. Can you talk a little bit about those types of operations and the countermeasures that are taking place in that conflict? Sure. I published an article a while back to the effect of, why isn't Russia jamming as much in the Ukraine as we might expect, right? We certainly know that they are jamming in Ukraine. They're certainly doing it before the war. They were regularly defeating organization of European states, monitoring of the peace accord that had been brokered after Russia took the Crimea. And uh, the drones and other surveillance assets that were trying to monitor everybody doing the right thing were regularly interfered with. So we know what was going on before the war. Uh, we don't have any open source about what's going on right now. But uh, there's a lot of indications that uh, the Russians aren't, are not denying GPS entirely to the, the Ukraine. One, I think we would hear about it. And uh, two, we have a sense that Russia kind of needs GPS operating to some degree in the Ukraine where they are and in the Ukraine to, in order to accomplish their goals as well. They want, I think they want the infrastructure that they need to use or they want to use to continue on. Uh, and we've seen things like uh, Russian fighter jets being down that have commercial GPS receivers duct taped to their dashboard because presumably they don't have uh, the equipment on board to 
use to, to access their own satellite navigation system and, and that equipment's not available to them commercially or maybe their satellite system they don't think is sufficiently reliable. It, it's hard to say, but we do know things like that, that they, they seem to be using it for some things. Where do you see this, this going? Because I, I, at least from an observer standpoint, we were surprised at how Russia conducted the early phase of the operation. And, and to a degree now, a year out, it seems to be a little bit more like, okay, this is what we expected originally, you know, in terms of some of the tactics they used and some of the points of emphasis that they're, they're following. Next, uh, uh, this hopefully will not be going on for a long time, but into the near future, what do you expect to see more of or less of uh, on this particular issue as it pertains to Ukraine or Russia? In other words, I'm asking you to speculate, even though earlier in the episode you said, I'm not going to speculate. Um, but how can you help us kind of look at this issue into the future a little bit and what to think about? Well, let me say that I, positioning navigation timing is going to continue to be critical for Ukraine and for the United States. You may have noticed in the press where Elon Musk was upset that Starlink uh, services were being used by the Ukrainians for military purposes, right? So it's pretty clear to us that what that means is that the Ukrainians have figured out how to reverse engineer the Starlink communications system to also use it as a navigation system, right? So Starlink is in low Earth orbit as opposed to GPS being in medium Earth orbit. It has a much stronger signal. It has other attributes that make it more difficult to interfere with. So if uh, while the Russians might be jamming GPS so that the Ukrainian, Ukrainian drones can't find their way to their targets, the Ukrainians, if they were able to continue to use Starlink for, um, for navigation, could very effectively navigate their drones very reasonably precisely to, to their targets. And so militarily and geopolitically, it was uh, quite significant that Elon Musk uh, took action to uh, prevent them from doing that. That has implications, I think, for every nation. And it's an example to us in the United States that while China and Russia have terrestrial systems that they can use for timing and navigation, as do some other countries, we do not. And so we are hanging uh, everything on this fragile set of signals from space and our adversaries have, have chosen not to do so. So if someone can deny us those signals from space, they can do to us what uh, Elon Musk did to the Ukraine and completely defying us. And as we talked about earlier, you know, if they really deny it to us, then it, it has implications for all of our, uh, all of our infrastructure and it's a near existential threat. What are some of the things from a, a policy perspective or a technology perspective that we need to be thinking about putting some of our focus on when we think about you know, critical infrastructure, protecting critical infrastructure, you know, from a range of attacks, and this also affects critical infrastructure. One of the problems we always run into is the cost of it. And, and how do you get private companies or commercial interests to understand that the cost is worth the protection and security that you get? even though the threat might not necessarily seem clear and present. How do you get everybody on board with a countermeasure or with a, a protection effort? Sure. Well, I mean, that's a classic governmental leadership issue, isn't it, right? Uh, how do we get seatbelts uh, in uh, cars uh, over the many years? How do we get a malodorant in natural gas? How do we get hardened cockpit doors, have better levees in New Orleans? I mean, a lot of those were a result of severe national trauma, right? Seatbelts, not so much, but 
you know, it's very difficult sometimes to affect these kinds of national changes without some kind of significant cathartic, tragic government, uh, national event. So we hope in this instance that that's, that's not the case. It doesn't work that way. So uh, from a government leadership perspective, how do you do that? Well, you typical carrot and stick, right? So the first thing you do is you make doing the right thing as easy as possible, as inexpensive as possible. So you encourage research to make equipment uh, much less expensive. You provide signals for free, just as you do with GPS. That's how GPS got adopted, right? You establish requirements for uh, the, related to safety and national security and, uh, and level, level the playing field so one company doesn't feel like they're being disadvantaged because they're being required to do something another company is doing. I mean, if they're in the same industry and they're both critical and you think that they need to be protected. And you do that across what we call protect, toughen, and augment, right? That's, that's, the, uh, that's the abbreviated. There's always three things, right? When you make a recommendation, you have to have three things. So the, the PNT advisory board talks about protect, toughen, and augment. So you protect the, uh, the signals by having the, the right laws prohibiting the device's interference and uh, appropriate penalties for people who violate the laws and you have enough people to enforce the, the laws and you have a monitoring system to be able to detect when the laws are being violated. Toughen, people need to have better equipment, right? It's because a lot of the problem could be solved with more sophisticated receivers, right? And not perhaps not the national existential issues, but a lot of the day-to-day problems, risk that people run could be solved if they have a bit more sophisticated, albeit a little bit more expensive receiver. So, uh, you know, you can address that by encouraging research to make the more resilient receivers less expensive. You can provide subsidies for, uh, for purchase tax credits. I mean, you know, it's, it's the government thing that the government's been doing for decades. And then augmentation, alternative augmenting complementary signals for GPS that work with GPS in the same receiver, but can stand alone at the same time if GPS isn't available. And you make that as easy for folks to incorporate and adopt and use as is humanly possible. Great. Well, so if anyone wanted to get more information on this, contact they can contact your organization. Again, it's the, the Resilient Navigation and Timing Foundation. It's a charitable organization. How do people get a hold of you or the foundation or how should they do that uh, via email or website? Sure. Our website is rntfnd.org. There's an 800 number on the website and as well as an inquiries at number. My personal email is dgoward, Delta Golf Oscar Whiskey Alpha Romeo Delta at rntfnd.org. And so they should uh, reach out whenever they like with whatever questions uh, they like. We have uh, the opportunity for individual and corporate memberships uh, on the site and we, uh, we have quite the collection of companies from large ones like Google to small ones that, uh, that are very niche uh, navigation providers across the spectrum who, uh, who support our efforts. And we are always looking for more books. Well, that, that, that's great. And so I, I thank you so much for taking more time uh, to join us here on From the Crow's Nest and, and on the heels of the AOC webinar series. We'll provide the links and that information as well on the show notes. And of course, again, if you're an AOC member, you can go to AOC website at crows.org and download uh, Dana's uh, presentation. And if you're not a member, you might want to consider doing that because as we have both webinars and podcasts, we like to share information. It's a great, you get to build up your resource library that way. So with that, Dana, I want to, again, thank you for joining me. It's a great conversation. I hope to have you back on in the near future. Thank you. My pleasure. And it's great to be a crow myself. Thanks. Fantastic. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I want to thank my guest, Dana Goward, for joining me. 
Also, don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please take some time to let us know how we're doing. That's it for today. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at FTCNHost and look out on our website at crows.org or our eCrow newsletter for my article on the FY 2024 defense budget. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.